some people say it's the House Freedom Caucus, but as our colleague Tina reported on Wednesday, it's, you know, a bunch of caucuses of one, but all of them seem to agree that Ukraine shouldn't get any more aid. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 22nd. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe with a look at Volodymyr Zelensky's tour of the Acela Corridor. The Ukrainian president spoke to the United Nations this week and met behind closed doors with U.S. senators in Washington as his country continues to fight off Russia. After 18 very long months, can Zelensky keep the Western money flowing? Julia and I discuss. And later, Dylan Byers joins Ben to talk about the fallout from Rupert Murdoch's resignation from Vox. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Tomorrow is the first day of fall. I hope you are all clutching your pumpkin spice lattes, wearing a mock turtle sweater, and settling in for college football. Uh, Julia, are you going to be doing that tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, pumpkin spice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, pumpkin spice, not in your uh, Eastern European DNA. Absolutely not. If you couldn't figure it out by now, my guest today is Julia Yaffe, and uh, this was a big week, Julia, (laughs) for Volodymyr Zelensky, who came to the United States, spoke to the UN, came to Washington, met with senators, all of this in pursuit of securing more money, making sure allies are still aligned, making sure people on Capitol Hill are still helpful. He's also done a lot of media interviews. And I watched him with Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes. I listened to him yesterday talking to Steve Inskeep on NPR. And both of those guys said that Zelensky just seems like really tired. Like if you're just around him, he seems exhausted. And look, that makes a lot of sense. He is saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again to foreign leaders. For 18 months. Yeah, like we need your help. If If Russia succeeds, it will ruin democracy for the entire world. Ukraine is not going to be divided, et cetera, et cetera. So, Julia, what like what is his overriding mission from this trip to the States? Is it just what I said to just keep hammering the message in person? Yeah, I think it's that. And it's also, you know, because there's this, uh, I think, understanding, dawning understanding in the Zelensky government that things are getting really hard. The wheels are getting real sticky in Washington in terms of passing Ukraine aid. I mean, one of the things that... Some people say it's the House Freedom Caucus, but as our colleague Tina reported on Wednesday, it's, you know, a bunch of caucuses of one, but all of them seem to agree that Ukraine shouldn't get any more aid. And the kind of the amount of hostility directed at Zelensky at Ukraine on the on the far right is kind of jaw dropping. Um, And I think it's giving people in Washington this sense that Uh, The American public is getting tired of funding Ukraine, but really it's the far right of the Republican Party, mostly, because even according to the latest polls, even Republicans are 50-50 on supplying aid to Ukraine. It's not like zero. And, you know, I think it was a kind of like, you know, we're still here. This is still important. This is still important, not just to Ukraine. It's important to Europe. What I thought was interesting about Zelensky's speech to the General Assembly 
was that he tried to make it relevant to the countries in the so-called global south, right? He talked about why this war was relevant to them. He talked about Putin weaponizing food, weaponizing grain, and what he's done to grain prices. And it was like, here's why you should care, even though you're not in our neighborhood. His UN Security Council speech was basically kind of a reprise of what he talked about in the early days of the war when he spoke to the UN, which was, what is the point of the UN if you can't do the things the UN is supposed (laughs) to do, right? Like you have this UN charter that has certain clear principles and you can't do shit to defend them. So what is the point of you? You know, and he said, the reason you can't do this is because the aggressor is on the UN Security Council and has veto power over everything. And he... I mean, sitting in that at that famous horseshoe table at the UN Security Council said, we need to reform the UN Security Council. Russia is not the legitimate successor to the USSR and should not have been on the Security Council to begin with. And we should get it off the Security Council because it's an aggressor in violation of the UN Charter. And he got he's getting a lot of support for that from other countries, especially in Eastern Europe. And then on Thursday, he went down to Washington, where we learned that he had asked Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, to give a joint address to Congress the way he did in December. And it turns out McCarthy said no to him. Really? Yeah, yeah, that just broke like an hour before you and I sat down to talk. Basically, McCarthy said, oh, we don't have time for this. But really what it is, is the people in his caucus who have his balls and advice hate Ukraine, don't want to fund it anymore. And I think, you know, he's trying to hold on to his job. He's trying to keep the U.S. government open, although how hard he's trying is, you know, I think the jury's still out on that. But um, I think he clearly didn't want to pour gasoline on the flames by allowing Zelensky to come and speak to Congress in the middle of this insane budget fight. So instead, Zelensky met with all 100 senators in a small, special fancy room in the Senate. And uh, the readout was very positive. He got two standing ovations. Somebody in the room told me he was handling questions very well, that he was really resonating. We saw even Ted Cruz shake his hand. So After we record, he's going to down the street to the White House, uh, where he's going to meet with people in the Biden administration, as well as uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a few more days. And uh, yeah. You're right to point out that this is one of actually few major policy divisions in the Republican Party right now, which is generally, you know, aside from personality cultural and certain political differences that we are seeing flaring in the House Republican caucus right now, for example, over government funding. But in terms of just like macro big picture stuff, what does the Republican Party believe? This is almost a majority issue in the Republican Party among Republican voters that we should stop sending money to Ukraine. And it's why Vivek Ramaswamy got such a big ovation for that in the first Republican debate. But it also seems like Republicans are kind of split on it. You know, some of the polling is not is again, it says like 50 percent of Republican voters do want to send uh, yeah, yeah. money. No, to that's what I'm saying. I think it's, it's a like, real yeah. it's a real division in the party. That's what I'm saying. Like versus like we all agree that trans girls shouldn't play on boys sports teams. I see what you mean. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
Uh, I think what I keep hearing in Washington is that it's um, that the Republicans on the Hill, for them, most of them support Ukraine, right? The Republican mm-hmm. yeah, chairman exactly. of the Foreign Foreign Relations Committee, Mike McCall, is so strong on Ukraine. I mean, he came out of these meetings uh, today on the Hill and said, you know, we have to give Ukraine everything they need. And if the White House isn't going to give it to them, why don't we just write the specific weapons in our appropriations bill? Like, good good luck, Mike McCall. But right. And I guess what I would say is that 50% of Republicans do support it. You know, like they I think the discourse in Washington and in the Republican primary gives a sense that like no Republicans support it. No, but like like Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, the more traditionalist mm-hmm. foreign policy types on that Republican debate stage, like they came back at Vivek and were like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, you moron. And like there is. Yeah, I'm just saying it's an actual division that is interesting. But a question I have for you yeah. in tandem to that is, are there any Democratic senators who are skeptical about continuing to write checks to Ukraine or is or is the Democratic Party mostly in lockstep? On this topic. I think on this on the Senate side, no, I think they're in lockstep. I think there are people uh, on the left in the House who are maybe a little bit less bullish on Ukraine, but nowhere near the level of vitriol and uh, hostility that we're seeing on the far right on the House side. But you know, on the in, on the Senate side, there's like a few kind of usual suspects who will vote against Ukraine aid or or speak against it, you know, Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, those guys. But in general, it's like a really, really mainstream position. And I think what's also interesting is, you know, given the Mitch McConnell health scares, the, the freeze-ups over the last uh, few weeks, I've been hearing people in the foreign policy community who are lean liberal Democratic, Uh who are like, and for whom, you know, Mitch McConnell was the devil before, right? He stole a Supreme Court seat, according to them, blah, blah, blah. But now they're like, come on, Mitch McConnell, please hang on. We need you because, you know, he is so strong and so hawkish on Ukraine aid. uh, And he is the one who kind of gets everybody in his conference behind it. And so there's this kind of real fear now that, you know, because who comes after McConnell, are they going to be as strong on Ukraine? Exactly. I mean, he is the embodiment of the Republican foreign policy establishment and Chamber of Commerce swing of the GOP. One last yeah. thing I want to ask you for before I let you go, Julia. Um, and I don't know if you listen to Steve Inskeep interviews, Zelensky on NPR on Thursday, but he did ask a kind of interesting question of him. And Zelensky was noncommittal on this, which was Ukraine's supposed to have a presidential election next yeah. year. I heard that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Zelensky was obviously saying like, I think we should have elections. You know, I trust the people, but there's so many displaced Ukrainians. The country is obviously in a very dangerous security situation. And he was kind of non-committal uh, to having elections next year. Uh, and by the way, I think like Putin would love that because he can point to them and be like, oh, they're not a democracy. What's your what's your take? Do you think they can have elections? Was that the right answer from Zelensky? I mean, I think it's an honest answer, right? Because I think if elections were held in Ukraine right now, I'm sure he would win in a landslide. Like, he is massively popular in Ukraine right now. His approval ratings were in the toilet before the war started, but now he is this unifying figure in Ukraine. I think he would win in a landslide. But it is true. Like, how do you 
have elections when there are 8 million refugees outside of Ukraine, when there are as many, if not more, refugees displaced internally in Ukraine, where places are getting bombed all the time. Like, are you going to ask people to get in line at a polling station, you know, and then what happens if they get hit? Right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, those would absolutely be target. I feel like those would be targeted. A hundred percent. Also, like, how do you hold elections in territories occupied by Russia that are, you know, Ukrainian territory? If you have elections kind of uh, electronically, we all know that those are like an extremely unsafe, insecure way to, you know, cast your ballot. The practical challenges are very real. But if he were to have one, I think he would win. So I mean, I I think he's being honest. It's also like, when are they scheduled in the spring of 2024? Right? It's like at least six months away from now. What is the situation going to look like then? I think committing to anything in Ukraine right now is very difficult. I think that's absolutely the case. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, They sell pumpkin spice candles, I believe at Pottery Barn, Walmart. Uh, yeah, or Bed, ba- Bed Bath & Beyond. So like, just, just head out and buy one this weekend and enjoy that sweet uh, smell of fall. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> when we come back, Dylan Byers is here to talk Rupert Murdoch's resignation. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Dylan Byers. Hey, man. How you doing, Ben? I'm good. Thanks for jumping on. We uh, we wanted to change up the schedule and get you back on here to talk about Rupert Murdoch announcing his resignation on Thursday from Fox and News Corp. On some level, this should not be surprising, right? Rupert's 92 years old. His health hasn't been the best. But also, he's always sort of suggested that he would die rather than retire in this job. Do you have a sense of what might have caused him to change his mind in making this announcement? Yeah, well, I I think there are a lot of theories and no 
totally concrete answers. I mean, on the one hand, this this announcement sort of feels titanic in scope because it's a 70 year run that he's had from the sort of inheriting his father's two newspapers in Adelaide to becoming this sort of media baron with unrivaled influence over politics and culture across three different countries. On the other hand, like you said, it is it is not all that significant because it effectively formalizes an arrangement that has sort of existed for several years and has sort of already come into place, wherein, of course, no one wields more power over Fox and News Corp than Rupert Murdoch. And so long as he lives and breathes, that will like continue to be the case. But he is also 92 and he's not going to be around forever. And Lachlan has been sort of running more things on a sort of day-to-day basis, or or at least sort of dealing with his direct reports uh, who are running things on a day-to-day basis. And so the question is, yes, why now? I think, you know, given, I think, the sort of influence that Rupert has over American politics, especially given that every uh, media reporter and media watcher out there uh, is a big fan of succession, given our proclivity for for sort of conspiratorial thinking, I think we're all sort of reaching for some sort of thing that hasn't been reported yet. And perhaps that is out there. But it is also just as likely and the, the most obvious explanation is that this is either a health consideration, which is something that Fox and the people around Rupert are trying very hard to tamp down. They're saying he's sharp as a tack and, you know, was at the offices in Los Angeles today and on the editorial call. So if it's not health, the other thing is, okay, what are the business incentives for transitioning to a chairman emeritus role? And the best available explanation for that, according to the folks I've spoken with, is that in a scenario where Rupert does pass, his empire and the fate of that empire is going to pass not just to Lachlan, but to the Lachlan and three of his siblings who might have very different designs for what should become of this company. And if you formalize Lachlan as the sole chairman and CEO now, you create some runway wherein the siblings, the street investors can sort of get used to the idea that Lachlan is capable of running Fox without his father. And that is a much more stable environment to have in place if and when Rupert dies than to sort of have him die while he is the co-chairman of these companies and then have all these sorts of questions about whether or not Lachlan is capable of running it on his own, therefore making him more vulnerable to a potential takeover by the siblings or a forced sale or something like that. So in any event, I think it's probably some combination of all of the above. I don't think he's quite as spry and healthy as his aides would suggest. And I also think that he does have to think about what's going to happen to the company after he dies. And frankly, what's going to happen to the company, given the fact that the assets that he owns, while still powerful and in some cases lucrative, are declining assets. It's newspapers, it's television stations, it's news channels. You know, I think if he looks around the industry... He sees that Bob Iger is getting ready to offload ABC. 
He sees that there's probably further consolidation down the line for other companies. He sees everyone struggling. This job is not sort of as august and powerful as it once was. And I think that he is probably preparing for that in his own mind as well. Yeah, I want to ask you more about the economic environment and context there. But since you brought up succession, I mean, that's a, that's a really astute point. Apparently, people around Fox are using this phrase semi-retirement to describe what's happening here. You know, there's a sense that Rupert's never going to truly leave or relinquish power until he's dead. And even then, as you noted, he sort of lives on through this trust he's created for his children that sort of divvies up power between the children. But as you noted, he's clearly put Lachlan in the driver's seat, and it's going to make it harder if the other children were at some point in the future to team up together and try and do something different with his company. I mean, we know that, for instance, James Murdoch is a lot more liberal than his brother Lachlan. I I mean, I personally know less about the politics of the other two elder siblings, Murdoch's daughters. But as you noted, by sort of setting Lachlan in the driver's seat, getting the street comfortable with him, it then becomes a lot harder to take him out of the picture without losing the confidence of investors and other stakeholders in this company. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and look, it's not succession in the traditional sense, right? There, there's not like a, going to be. I mean, it's 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 family, and and Lachlan is very much the favored son. And they they are well, their politics differ a little bit. I think Lachlan is further to the right than his father. They're pretty much simpatico on what they're doing with this business, and so it's not as though Rupert is handing the reins to his son, and you're going to run into like a. Bob Iger, Bob Chapek situation where they all of a sudden hate each other and can't agree and are trying to undermine one another. If Rupert picks up the phone and calls Lachlan with an idea for what should happen, I don't foresee Lachlan really like pushing back hard against that. And so in that regard, the Fox empire, the News Corp empire, that remains Rupert Murdoch's empire. But yes, it is. You, you do have to sort of you, you have to play this forward and then work backward. And 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 if you go to a post Rupert world, you do have to think about the fact that the trust states that basically Lachlan, Rupert, Liz and Prudence, the, these four kids have sort of equal say in what happens to the company. James is more liberal. Uh, Liz is at least said to be interested in the idea of a sale, presumably the the worst case scenario here for Rupert and Lachlan is that Rupert dies and then the the James somehow convinces his sisters to come in and take the company away from Lachlan and they change what it is. They change the politics of Fox News, the politics of the tabloids. Perhaps they sell it. I think that Rupert and by extension, Lachlan would rather be in the driver's seat to dictate what happens to the company. Uh, whether they continue to own it or sell it. And if they sell it, perhaps selling it even before Rupert dies. And I think, again, it's just even if this structure has been in place for a long time, the inevitable questions about can Lachlan actually run this company? He doesn't have sort of a sterling reputation. I mean, he's done, he's, he's achieved some significant things that to be investment, other investments he's made that have actually grown a significant amount of capital. But you know, by and large, I think those questions are fair. He is not his father. And is the company safe in his hands? And if you're trying to preserve the company the way that Rupert and Lachlan want to preserve it, you need to sort of create the narrative that Lachlan is the sole CEO, sole chairman, and thereby it becomes a lot easier for investors to stomach if and when there is a sort of push and pull among the siblings. 
Obviously, you do a lot of writing and reporting on this ever-present leitmotif at, at Puck, which is the decline of cable news, this massive industrial transformation from linear television to streaming and all that entails. That, to me, is a really interesting piece of the context here. And you, you mentioned the, the economic environment earlier, but I mean, clearly Fox has already passed the apex of its economic and political power. I mean, Murdoch already sold off $71 billion of assets to Disney in 2019, the ratings are going down and down, even though Fox, um, with its older audience, tends to be a little bit more robust than its competitors. But the audience is, is cutting the cord. They're inevitably dying off. And the Republican base also is is drifting even more to these insane wingnut outlet rivals out there. How much do you think all of that played a part in Rupert's decision to not entirely walk away, but definitely to, to take a step back? You know, I think in writing that leitmotif, as you describe it, of decline, we are also often find ourselves talking about whether you're talking at the level of the talent or the executives or, or the, the moguls and the owners. In many cases, these jobs aren't what they used to be. And I think if you're Rupert and you've been, you've, you know, you, you know, you've sort of been at the top of this game for so long and you look around now, where are you? The empire that you built, we still talk about Fox and News Corp as an empire, but in fact, that empire has been carved up. And much of that empire, like you mentioned, was sold off to Disney. I think in retrospect, that was a very smart move by Rupert, uh, not necessarily as smart a move by Disney, but perhaps uh, further time will tell. So he loses that. Part of the calculation for handing that off, and this is something that Succession actually got right, is he didn't actually trust any of his kids to sort of take over that that empire. He's sitting on top of newspapers that he loves and television channels that I'm sure he loves the influence of, if not always the the actual editorial bent. But those two are declining, right? And we are, as we love to say here in the sort of everything on the table era, when it seems like everything is up for sale and the price is continuing to go down and I think if he looks around and he's 92 years old and whatever health he's in, this role isn't quite as much fun as it used to be. Will he continue to sort of try to use his assets to wield influence over the next presidential election cycle? I'm sure I'm sure that he will. But by and large, this seems probably as good a time to go as any. You know, he just settled a $787 million defamation suit. He's got another one coming down the pipeline in Smartmatic. The more he can sort of distance himself from the sort of latter day controversies of this empire he's built, I think probably the better. And so, yeah, you know, on the one hand, you're like, why now? Why why on a Thursday morning in September? And on the other hand, it's sort of like, well, why not now? Why not at 92? Why not when the empire is in decline, why not when you may have to prepare this whole thing for a sale in a few years' time? Maybe he just wants to spend more time with the wives and the family <laughs> or find a fourth <laughs> or a fifth wife. There's still time. I he's, think he's, uh, he's got still a new young. squeeze. Uh, the re- reports as of last month are that he has a new squeeze, a new Russian squeeze. He's he's apparently always telling people that his uh, his mother lived to 104 or something like that. So he clearly yeah. still thinks that he's got some time. Yeah, definitely. And there is sort of, I think, one thread that ties together so many of the media moguls of the 20th century is their sort of um, <laughs> the hubris and their their confidence in, in, in their longevity. 
but you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe Michael Wolf knows, but uh, Rupert might be with us for a week or he might be with us for another decade. I don't know. But I do believe fundamentally that so long as he has, has his wits about him, he will continue to wield influence over Fox. So the notion, and I understand why an announcement like this sort of elicits all of these sort of obituary style columns about his legacy. I get that. But um, he has not died. He has not left Fox or News Corps. And he doesn't really have any intention of leaving Fox or News Corps, as he stated himself in his announcement. I do think that this is a way of getting people comfortable with Lachlan for the changes that are coming down the road. All right, Dylan, got to leave it there. Thanks as always for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.